Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. We have a bit of a patchwork episode, uh, Justice Update for you all, focused on the International Criminal Court's Assembly of State Parties, which wrapped up last Friday. Yeah, we managed to meet up in The Hague. Hello, nice to see you in person. Um, but we were one of the few journalists who were allowed in because of the coronavirus measures. Yeah, and in the noisy lobby of the World Forum Cafe, we talked to Molly Quell from Courthouse News. And our audience might also know her from the excellent live tweeting that she does of the MH17 uh, case in the Dutch courts. Now, Molly and I were at a press conference with Karim Khan uh, when we spoke a day earlier and Janet wasn't. Um, so we wanted to have Janet listen to some clips. But first, I asked Molly about her impressions. I mean, I think having covered the court for the past couple of years, it was very nice to have a press conference and it was very nice to have access to the prosecutor to be able to ask questions. And I think that I would want that to be the biggest takeaway. That being said, it was a very spicy press conference, and I, I quite enjoyed the uh, creative answers that Khan had to some of the questions that were asked of him. Um, he is was not pulling any punches on some things, which I which I enjoyed. That's one of the reasons I've kept uh, uh, Janet in the dark, uh, because I was also super happy that I was finally back in that room where we had a press conference where it's actually meeting press and answering questions, even though, you know, prosecutors famously very good at dodging whatever you want uh, answered directly. But I was quite surprised at the harsh kind of things that he said that seemed to be a bit of a swipe uh, to Fatou Bensouda. And so we have lined up some quotes uh, for Janet, who hasn't heard anything about this yet, to, to take a listen to. Well, I'm really intrigued now to uh, to hear exactly what he had to say. I'm really sorry, Prosecutor Khan, for missing your first press conference. And I promise I'll be there another time. Over to you, guys. If we keep promising that we can do everything when we've got resources, we're lying. We're deceitful. We're raising expectations, and I'm not going to, whatever the consequences, uh, I'm, not, I'm going to do my best. And I said it before I was elected, and I try my best to be true to my word. I'm not going to raise expectations, even if it means being candid and having the criticism. The simple truth is this. The budget that the Assembly of State Parties um, have, uh, I hope by now, but it, I heard it, it was under the silence procedure uh, proposed, is about 49.5 million for 2022, 49.5 million. In UNITAD, my last mandate, just for Iraq, just in relation to Daesh, putting the general budget together, which was, Tom, about uh, 21, 22, and the, and the trust fund, we had about 30 million a year. Now, I've got... 11 investigations here, 16 preliminary examinations. Honestly, there's a degree of realism everybody needs to get. Money, money, money is what the ASP is all about. And yes, he didn't get entirely what he wanted. So um, he's going to use that as an excuse. Well, the money uh, obviously is one thing. But on the other thing, he said, you know, if we raise expectations, we're lying, we're being deceitful. So I thought that that's quite something to say for if you are just taking office over from somebody who instigated a lot of preliminary examinations that he's now all reviewing. It definitely seemed like a bit of a shot at the approach of the previous 
prosecutor, Fatu Bensouda. Um, on the other hand, I do think that the rest of his comments were framed in such a way that made it seem as though he was more attacking the institution or the ASP or sort of the world that exists around the court as opposed to her directly. I mean, I think he made some comments later that were much more um, sort of critical of kind of the environment that the ICC exists in as opposed to like her strategy in particular. Um, so I'm not sure how much of this was sort of intended to be kind of a jab at her as opposed to just sort of, I think, genuine frustration with kind of the process over the budget, but also, yeah, over the expectations and stuff. Well, true. Well, I might have also selectively had some of these quotes. What did you think of that bit, Janet? I think he's really got a point, hasn't he? That if everybody keeps on piling on the court and saying, you should do more, you should do more, you should do more, then who is going to fund it? I mean, it is possible he could find funding from other sources. I haven't seen any sign of that. Um, and at the moment, it's up to states and basically up to rich states who are all suffering from the COVID-19 crisis to, to come up with some more. And they're just not going to. So I don't know. There's a part of me that just says, yeah, I mean, he's being realistic. Um, and to use the word that it would be deceitful, he's saying, I wish to actually tell truth to power. Is he not? I mean, that's the other side of deceitful. That uh, I've got to tell you guys, you want something, you've got to, you've got to pay, pay up for it. I think he's acclimated well to living in the Netherlands because he seems to have very quickly adopted the Dutch directness approach <laughs> to things. Well, we're going to have another example of this very Dutch uh, directness approach coached in uh, very uh, lovely, uh, crisp English. So when you compare what the demand is of the prosecutor and the incessant demands do everything, it's, it would be very easy for me. Yes, I'm doing it. I'm not going to have ghost teams. I'm not going to have phantom teams. I'm not going to, um, you know, proceed and give, a, a, you know, um, an impression that there is activity when there's not, because I think that is not honourable. I don't think it's consistent with my integrity. I think it pr leaves a nightmare for one's successor, because then you come in and you see, in some cases, it's old mother Hubbard's cupboard, as the poem goes in, in English. So the cupboard is bare, he says, if you complete the nursery rhyme. Um, so that suggests that he's actually looked at the reality of all these different investigations and some of the preliminary examinations and discovered that there is not a lot going on. I love the idea of uh, describing some of the previous workers ghost teams or phantom teams. There, if I recall, the previous prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, did actually say that she was you know, putting into dormancy the Darfur investigation at one point. I can remember uh, in coming up to one ASP, the description of how she had, if she wanted to start Burundi as an investigation, she had to pull people off other teams. So I have seen some, quote, candor, unquote, from her previously, but the way he's putting it makes it sound like he's come in and found not a lot. Yeah, that seems a, a, a very, I, I heard that and was like, I'm now mimicking a slack jaw, uh, kind of, wow, ghost teams, uh, ghost prosecutions, that is 
I'm, I'm imagining that he's like open doors and there's like there's cobwebs, <laughs> yeah, cobwebs and flies coming out. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, when I was there yesterday, I don't think I quite caught how harsh that was phrased, to be honest. I thought it was a little more couched, but that's much more of an attack on, yeah, his predecessor. I, I wonder how accurate this is i mean he has uh it is in his interest to sort of position himself in being in a situation where all of these investigations have been opened and his predecessor didn't do enough and he kind of came in and was like stuck with this workload i mean i think everyone has gotten jobs in their life and come in and blamed some issues on like the person who had the job previously um just not quite in such a public format you mean like the last plumber that you had yeah. and criticizing the next one? Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, as somebody who's had a lot of work done on their house recently, let me tell you how much the new guy is always blaming the old guy. But yeah, I mean, I do think it's a real question, like how much effort has been put into a number of these preliminary investigations and what it is even possible for the court um, to be able to juggle successfully all at the same time. It's a very valid question. And I do believe that whole uh, uh, comparison of the budget and the cases he has and the personnel he has, it seems that it's good that somebody looks at that with a more possibly realistic. I I don't have the quote here, but he was very adamant also that it was better for survivors and victims if he was just candid about what he could do and not do instead of raising the hopes of people who've already had their rights and their lives violated in such extreme ways. And I felt that he was at least being very um, open about or very uh, clear about that that was what he wanted. Uh, So he seemed to be very sincere in that. Um, I did pick up another little thing where I, I was wondering what it uh, said about his uh, uh, relationship uh, with the other people in the office. Uh, and I will uh, let you listen to that now, Janet. Um, it is correct that, and I think it was to be expected, and indeed incumbent upon me to seek to review all the Uh, cases, situations, preliminary examinations that are in the court's docket. But that doesn't mean that uh, there's any predetermination. But of course, I will only go forward in cases um, that have a realistic prospect of conviction. I've already asked in terms of the cases um, that are before the court for the senior trial attorney to attest in writing to me their judgment that there's a realistic prospect of conviction. And that uh, is something that... uh, Uh, I'm going to, and I made it very clear to the office, uh, a standard that I want to be um, adopted even before any arrest warrant application uh, is made or any request for a summons is issued. And of course, that sounds very realistic and sensible. And of course, it's, you you can only imagine everybody discusses this all the time. But things change. And that's also why you have very often very long processes before you end up with anybody in the dock because politics change people change you know the real politique changes so is he saying that on that basis he's then going to stop doing some of his his work because just right now you can't get hold of the people i mean it really you know it, it makes you wonder what decisions will be made 
Absolutely, and but I think the one thing that interested me also is that he's going to then ask senior trial attorneys to attest in writing that they think that there is enough evidence for this case to come to trial. That seems like you had a lot of bad plumbers, and the next plumber has to sign a contract that if the, I don't know, if the, if the faucet is still dripping after he's done this work, then he's going to come back and fix it for free. Quite uh, right. <laughs> So I would I was, like the plumber to come back and fix some things for free if, we, if that's an option. <laughs> I was wondering then, like, are they? Is he asking them to put their money where their mouth is? What does it say about his trust in senior trial attorneys that they can't come up to him and say, Kareem, really, I think this has enough evidence. He really wants to nail it down. I, I think he did after this also say that, you know, evidence changes over the years and degrades if you have these very long preliminary examinations, which are all uh, valid points. I just thought the point of housekeeping that I'm going to make them write me a note to, and have them sign it, that it's actually that case was like, ooh, that's very headmastery. It's a little um, like making your parents making you do a book report after, about a book you said you read over the summer, right? <laughs> it's just like what? Yeah. I mean, I, I find... I found this quite interesting because I think it's it's interesting that things would have gotten to a point that a senior trial lawyer would be prosecuting a case that it, it that they don't think that they could champion. So I wonder what that says about like the if this is if this is a meaningful thing that like would have like meaningful impact on stuff or if this is just kind of like creating more homework for like senior prosecutors in a way for him to can I swear on this podcast? Yeah. Cover his own ass, right? So that like later it's kind of like... Um... That's American version of swearing. <laughs> that is not swearing, Polly. Polly? Molly. I'm sorry, what the fuck is my name, Janet? <laughs> <laughs> but it, when, I, when I heard this, so this, what he was saying was in response to a question from somebody about whether or not he was planning on quashing or killing ongoing cases or investigations for either evidentiary reasons or lack of chance of conviction reasons or whatever, which he didn't directly say yes to. It was a bit of a mealy-mouthed sort of reply in this sense. But when I was listening to this at the press conference yesterday, my first instinct was like, oh, what you're trying to do is set it up so that like when somebody else comes in in a few years, you can be like, well, all these senior trial attorneys, they said that we could go forward with these cases. Like, who was I to not know that like these aren't convictions weren't possible? Oh, that's a very interesting take on it. I was just like, he's making them really review and really putting their own ass on the line to sign it and because he seems to be very adamant that he will uh, choose to do what he wants to do and not deal with whatever the kind of fallout is. But yeah, for me, it's more of a quote that uh, sets a kind of line in the sand and says, uh, this is a standard and I don't know whether it's a standard that's, that is accepted by everybody in, in this world that we live live in looking at international criminal law but that's his standard is it actually going to be practical um and that's uh, yeah that's a huge bar for everybody to jump over whether it's trial lawyers or anybody else i would say i guess in a charitable reading of this like if he was here to stand here and defend himself i think the charitable reading of this is that because of the constant pressure on the court to spread itself very thin, which I think has come a lot externally, right, that there are probably ongoing investigations or cases where there was a lot of pressure to do for the court to do something, 
even in the places where those cases were not necessarily going to lead to a conviction or even like say a meaningful conviction. And so maybe the charitable read of this is, is that what he wants is to sort of just have a moment for people who are maybe feeling doubtful about whether or not the investigations or the cases that they are working on have a likelihood of success to just be able to say, like, this just isn't possible, and I would like to put in writing my justifications for walking away from this for the victims, for the parties. I think that that would be the charitable sort of read of this. I'm not sure I buy into that, but I, I think it's worth making the case. Well, I think it was very interesting. He was asked also about uh, Afghanistan um, uh, and was basically asked outright if uh, he was bowing to American or international pressure. I am not making decisions based upon any timidity. I'm basing decisions based upon the worst evidence. And one thing I will not be embarrassed about, whatever critics say, is looking at that situation and the 80 terrible allegations of torture regarding uh, that were there that, that had been made and comparing it with the beheadings, the targeting of women and children in the most beastly fashion, looking at the scale and the gravity I am not apologetic that, that the more serious crimes and the continuing violations were Taliban and ISIS. And I think it would, it would have been easy to keep the status quo and leave it parked under the deferral. I think the proper course was not to be oblivious and to monitor the situation and decide my responsibilities required me to seek uh, to move forward with the investigation, but then to square with those individuals, including victims and survivor communities that may not be pleased, that may have had a lot vested in it, that may have wanted a different response to say, I cannot do it. I must use my resources effectively and intelligently, and um, I'm sorry, and also I'm not. He says this thing about them beheading women and children, and in that moment, he was quite, you could tell from the tone of his voice, that he was quite emotional about this. I mean, obviously, he had come from this investigation there, and so I think had seen some of these crimes really up close and personal, and it seemed to have a profound impact on him. The part that I thought was the most interesting about this is, is that he kind of brushed off the torture and said sort of it's just not as grave it of a crime yeah it doesn't rise to the level yeah. of of what taliban and, and isis k did and i think like that's a that's a real bold statement to say that this ongoing torture regime that the united states engaged in in afghanistan and also in other countries i mean this was like a systematic from the top down kind of thing which it seems like you know are the kind of cases that the court is most interesting in prosecuting the u.s has done you know nothing or worse than nothing basically and sort of bringing this to account and i was kind of surprised that he was willing to to make that comparison um, it does sound from that, that takes it a step further from the press statement that we had, which was to say, just refocusing. Um, I'm going to be very interested to hear responses when people hear that comparison that he makes, that um, sort of judgment that he's made as to what's more serious exactly as you say, Molly, there's a lot of people who see this as an incredibly serious alleged set of crimes that uh, um, that does need to be to be dealt with. So um, 
I think it's going to be fascinating to see how people respond. We're going to sign off this part where we where we deconstruct the Khan press conference, um, and we hope we don't put him off uh, of having more press conference because we liked it very much, and we would like to have more, Mr. Khan, if you're listening. Yeah, I really I can't emphasize enough how nice it was. Actually, I think for the first time since I've been covering the court, which has now been three years, that I've been able to put questions directly to the prosecutor sitting in front of me who has to answer them. And I think that that's really important. So far for my little show and tell to you, Janet, uh, then you had to leave. But I grabbed Alexandra Bakker of Public International Law Policy Group, uh, PILPG. She's a research associate and the editor-in-chief of their Lawyering Justice blog, and she'd been following the ICC and tweeting about it. So you did ask her, didn't you, about the other major themes of the ASP, the things that we're all concerned about, because we know it wasn't just the Kareem Khan show. Yes, of course. I was talking to her uh, as the deputy prosecutor election was going on during the recording. So all the people you can kind of hear walking in the background have just left the voting session. And as we were speaking, it became clear that Fiji's Nazat Shamim Khan, no relation to Karim Khan, uh, was elected as deputy prosecutor. Yeah, early in the day, I was there when after three rounds, Mr. Mam Manjai Nyang from Senegal was elected. So what will Karim Khan actually be doing with his two new deputies? I asked Alexandra exactly that. So let's get back to the noisy ASP cafe. Well, I think the the position this year is interesting because um, for the first time we have two deputy prosecutors that have been elected. Previously, there's always been just one um, person in that role. Um, And there were some questions, some doubts, I think, prior to the election about how our responsibilities might be divided between them, if this would result in sort of a lack of clarity as to the functions of the deputy prosecutors now. But the the rationale, at least behind having those two people in that role, was to improve um, the gender representation and geographical representation within the office of the prosecutor sort of at the highest levels. Um, So what we saw was an election based on two lists. We had one list of all female candidates to ensure that we had at least one female deputy prosecutor um, and a list with Francophone civil law background candidates to ensure that also we have that division of civil law and common law background and experience within the highest levels of the office of the prosecutor. So that's a watch this space for how these two deputies will shape up. Next, I asked about the issue at most ASPs, the budget. And last year's budget and this year have been especially difficult because of countries are spending massive amounts on COVID pandemic and have less to share uh, for the ICC. Yeah, the president of the ASP even told the states there that there had almost been a liquidity crisis staved off um, this year just because some of the countries who could afford it had agreed to pay their contributions for next year early. So how did that go? Well, here's Alexandra again to tell us. Well, I think we've definitely see that, um, seen that the coronavirus has had an impact on the budget, um, the discussions, but also the decisions that are ultimately made about the budget to allocate to the court. Um, we've seen that last year and this year again, um, the budget that is ultimately decided is about half of what was actually asked for, um, which is really quite significant also because at the same time, of course, states and different parties are requesting the Office of the Prosecutor to increase their activity and to you know, open new preliminary examinations or move into investigations or start new cases, while at the same time there are these sort of pretty significant constraints on um, the Office of the Prosecutor's budget to do so. 
Yeah, this is a theme that uh, we also explored in the Khan presser that you played earlier for me. Basically, the complaint is that there's really not enough money to do everything that everybody wants the court to do. Yeah, that brings us very neatly to the third theme that Alexandra noted, and it was all about complementarity. So one of the words that um, Kareem Khan has been using a lot this week has been complementarity. Um, and this is something that we've seen also in um, his activities prior to the ASP. Um, we saw him go to Venezuela and sign a memorandum of understanding with Maduro about so the steps that Venezuela would take on a, a national level um, when it comes to prosecutions. Um, and one of the things that I thought was really interesting within this framework of complementarity, which I think comes from Khan understanding that he can't do everything. He's very honest about the fact that he is trying to be pragmatic. He's trying to pursue the investigations, the preliminary examinations that he feels have a real chance of success. But I think he's complementing that by really investing, at least on an intellectual level, in state capacity. For example, we saw him this week appoint a new special advisor on mutual legal assistance. Um, he's appointed a number of these special advisors before, but I think this one's quite interesting because it's not maybe directly related to the actions that the office of the prosecutor itself is going to take. When we talk about mutual legal assistance, we're thinking about um, cooperation between states that are prosecuting individuals on a domestic level as opposed to the cooperation that happens between states and the court. Um, and so I think it'll be interesting to see, it's not very clear at the moment, what this special advisor's role will really be. Um, I think Khan sees a position for the Office of the Prosecutor to support states and to maybe help with capacity building, building up bodies of knowledge, bodies of expertise. Um, and it could be that that's where he sort of views the role for this special advisor. Um, but at the moment, it's not very clear. Yes, we'll be watching to see whether this approach of getting states themselves to set up on prosecutions bears fruit. For example, he's got a new memorandum of understanding with Venezuela, which uh, kind of falls into this category. So let's see. Let's see. When he we talked at the press conference, he also said that he would hope to return to Sudan and see what's possible there, and although a lot is still uh, unclear with the coup. But that's another uh, area where he hopes that other things may happen. But that wraps up this ASP. And it seems like, as always with these things, a lot will have to shake out in the next year as the prosecutor settles in his role and decides also which cases he will move forward on and which are not viable according to his criteria. And we'll be there to follow the court. As always. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.